Drafting Archetypes is brought to you by Grey Viking Games. Check them out with our affiliate code link in the description. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and we are on to Crimson Vow, and the first archetype I'm going to be discussing is Blue-Black. I've chosen to discuss Blue-Black because... For whatever reason, I've drafted blue a lot so far. It's the color I've drafted most, and I've had a few blue-black decks and a few notable uh, games against blue-black opponents. And so it was an archetype I felt relatively comfortable uh, discussing, given how early we are in the format. Now, obviously, I've only been playing with the set for a few days. It's only been out for a few days. So take anything I say with a grain of salt here, but I do think... You know, th this is speaking with some experience, if not full authority. So one thing I can say with absolute confidence is there are only nine exploit creatures in the set. Uh, there is one uncommon, one rare, and two commons in each blue and black. And then there is one blue-black uncommon, which is enough exploit stuff that you'll generally see some of it in a draft but not so much that you can um, be really picky about it if you're looking for it. And it's a small enough amount that if two people in a table are looking for it, one or both of them might not see very much of it and might not have enough for it to be like a primary thing that their deck is doing. So while blue-black sometimes or often focuses on exploit, I think that if you're drafting blue-black, you need to be prepared for the possibility that someone else at the table might be looking for those cards. And you might have to pivot into some different blue-black strategy. I think this is a uh, color combination that lends itself pretty well to having a few different approaches in terms of uh, just like fundamental game plan and what their curve looks like and what kinds of cards they want. I think that there's the like, all synergy like exploit version i think there's kind of like a skyzy tempo-y type deck and then i think there's also like a removal card draw control type deck and i think those are all kind of like different archetypes within blue black that are going to have some appreciably different um valuations of cards and priorities and stuff so I'm going to try to speak at least a little bit to each of those, but as far as like when you're thinking about what you're supposed to be doing with this color combination, you want to know that all of these and probably other options are on the table. And so you want to try to be uh, figuring out which of these directions you're going for or you know, at least at some point in the draft, not necessarily two picks in or whatever, be like, oh, I'm this kind of deck. Because you do want some amount of flexibility and you want to, you know, early in the draft, take card, like prioritize cards that are going to work well in multiple of those approaches or, you know, proportionate to how likely you are to end up wanting to go in that direction. And then uh, the further you get through the draft, the more you should be solidifying uh, what you expect your game plan is and taking cards to, you know, in addition to just like generally filling out your curve and stuff, also to uh, support and supplement that strategy that you've selected. 
let's see. The key cards that are going to tell you how to choose, like which of these lanes you want to be in. The best commons, like Bleed Dry, is the probably the best common in blue-black. Obviously doesn't give you a lot of direction. It's just a versatile removal spell. You're going to play it no matter what your deck is doing, and it's going to work about it the same. Whereas the best uncommons, there are a few different categories that the best uncommons in this color combination fit into. So there's like the premium removal spells, like a parasitic grasp, I think it's called. The deal three, gain three, costs less if it targets a human. And then uh, there's Hero's Downfall, uh, two and a, or one and two black, kill a creature or planeswalker. Those are very much like Bleed Dry. They're just going to be good no matter what. But a lot of the other best blue and black cards are the uncommon exploit creatures. So that's uh, the black 3-2 Death Touch Scorpion that exploits to make a player to sign in blood. And then Bioloom Egg, which is two and a blue, 04 ETB Scry 2. When you sacrifice it, it comes back at the end of the turn as a 4-4 that can sacrifice two islands to become unblockable. That card is really, really strong if you have exploit stuff because it lets you, like, you know, exploit for free. And then, well, it lets you, yeah, it basically gives you a free, like, it, well, it gives you two Scry up front, can block. Then you exploit it. And you get this, you know, better than three mana worth of creature for it. So that's kind of like the strongest uh, thing to sacrifice to your exploit creatures. Um, so if you start the draft, basically like if you start the draft with Biolumeg, you know that you're really going to be looking for exploit creatures. And the fact that you're looking for exploit creatures means you also want to look for other things to sacrifice to those exploit creatures for when you don't draw your Biolumeg. Whereas if you start with a premium removal spell, then you're going to be a lot more flexible. You might end up taking some exploit stuff and some enablers if it's convenient, but you'd be more likely to take something like a Cruel Witness, the blue, blue, two, three, three flyer with some uh, perks if you cast non-creature spells over Doom Dissenter, the uh, one in a black one, one that gives you a two, two when it dies. Whereas if you are going down the exploit path, you're likely going to be more interested in the Doomed Center than the Cruel Witness. Well, I think Biolumag and the blue-black 2-2 exploit scab guy, whatever that thing's called, are the two cards that most strongly push you into exploit as a game plan. Whereas if you take a different exploit creature, there it can be more of an incidental thing. Like if you have a Diver Scab, the 3-5 five for 5 that exploits to put a, put a creature on top or bottom of its owner's library, that's something where if you're playing blueback, it's uh, probably pretty easy to... Maybe I have the name wrong. Whatever that scab is. Uh, maybe it's going to be pretty easy to have if something to sacrifice without working really hard to have a lot of exploit stuff. You can just have like one exploit creature and a few fodder type creatures. Whereas if you have the skull scab or the biolumeg, you're going to want a density of exploit stuff to really take advantage of what's going on there, which means that you're going to be prioritizing all the exploit stuff that you find, prioritizing all the fodder you find, and really going for that. Whereas if you have just like a premium exploit creature, then it's just like, okay, we'll keep an eye out for some lantern bears, some doom dissenters, 
but for the most part, you know, draft more just like straight up. And then obviously, you know, while you're drafting straight up, if you see a Biolumag or a Skull Scab, that might send you back into that exploit path that I'm talking about. Similarly, if you end up like tabling a bunch of late exploit creatures at the end of pack one, now it's like, okay, well, I guess this is just open and I have these things and I'm going to want to take advantage of them. So now I should start prioritizing uh, the fodder. In general, I think you want to prioritize the fodder over the common exploit creatures. So this is kind of like an enablers over payoffs kind of situation where like Doom Dissenter and Lantern Bearer are just like pretty solid cards in blue-black where the common exploit creatures aren't going to be very good if you don't have things that you kind of actively want to sacrifice to them. Their payoffs are just not high enough. That is particularly true for Mind Leech School, which uh, ranks as currently, according to the early stats, the most overplayed common in blue-black in terms of uh, how often people play it relative to how often it wins. I think that's because, you know, it has the words that tell you that it goes in this deck, but at the end of the day, when you jump through the hoops, it's just like not even really worth it. Like, you know, you curve like, oh, Lantern Bearer, that's the thing that's really good to sacrifice into Mind Leech School. And you're like, okay, cool. I can sack my like one drop for value. And then it's like on turn two, I'm like, wait, do I even actually want to sacrifice this Lantern Bearer? Like, do I really care about them exiling a card of their choice on turn two? Or would I rather just have my one one flyer? So like that, that really low ceiling on Mind Leech School makes it like not something you want to prioritize unless you're really looking for more ways to sacrifice stuff, which is basically only going to come up if you have Bioloom Egg or if you're in some kind of bloody betrayal spot where you're really looking for sack outlets. Yeah, so Mind Leech School is definitely not something you want to prioritize. Then the two blue exploit commons the 3-2 that exploits to basically like cast opt, I guess, or the 3-3 uh, that exploits to get a thing back from your graveyard, repository scab and stitched assistant um, are like good if you have enablers, but they're like, you know, a little bit below rate if you play them and you don't exploit. Basically, I think that the exploit deck should be uncommon driven, particularly for the cards with exploit and ideally you're going to exploit the creatures you're sacrificing ideally want to be the egg and the one two ghoul that etb mills three and then when it dies you can exile it to get a creature back those are the like most premium things to exploit but if i have to use like commons for fodder or uncommons for fodder like if i have to, if i have a common and an uncommon in the equation i'd rather have common fodder uncommon exploit creature than common exploit creature uncommon fodder probably although i mean that's it's whatever i mean the uncommons are a lot better than the commons in both cases as for the common fodder the um the good common fodder is lantern bearer and doom dissenter those should be prioritized appreciably ahead of the weaker common fodder, which is Persistent Specimen and Wretched Throng. Persistent Specimen, I would say, has an asterisk that is, if you're very, like, if you have a ton of exploit, then Specimen becomes really important. 
But if you don't have like a lot of exploit, then you would prefer not to play it because it's pretty bad on its own. And then Wretched Throng is like, if you have three Wretched Throngs in your deck, I would rather have three Doom Dissenters. Like the fact that I can put more mana in to get more total bodies out of it isn't better than being capped at getting two bodies and not needing to invest mana for the second one, which means that because when you want to go into Wretched Throngs, you have to fight people to make sure that you get enough of them. It's not something that I really want to like. That's not a fight that I want to get into because the uh, payoff is so low. So I'd rather just like look for Dissenters and Lantern Bearers and generally stay out of the Wretched Throng battle. Yeah, you, you basically you want your two drops, your two mana commons to be uh, bearers and dissenters as much as possible. And I, I think that's true even if you're like just dabbling in exploit, those are still the two best commons, I th- like one and two mana commons, I think. I think your common two mana options in blueback are not very good. I have occasionally found myself playing a steel-clad spirit basically just as a wall with very few ways to ever attack with it just because I want to be able to block early. Ragged Recluse is another kind of like mediocre. So Steel Cloud Spirit is the one in a blue 3-3 that can only attack if you played an enchantment, and Ragged Recluse is the 2-1 when you discard a card, flips into a 3-3 at the end of your turn, and the 3-3 drains for one and it attacks. Those are kind of like uh, filler, like desperation, two-drop type level cards. The other approach that I've had when I'm not doing the exploit thing that I've had uh, experience with myself is kind of like the cruel witness deck where you're just kind of playing skies. You know, Lantern Bearer and Cruel Witness are your premium commons. And then you just like presumably get um, some of the higher rarity evasive creatures. Uh, There are a number of solid uncommons in that space and you can even play like you have a couple of three mana options that aren't great uh courier bat and the two three spirit that can't block non-flyers the courier bat is the wind drake that if you gain life can get something back from your graveyard it's pretty hard to gain life in blue black uh your best options are desperate farmer and gluttonous guest if you have a reasonable number of those, then that can become an actual priority. Desperate Farmer and Gluttonous Guest, I think, are both independently worth talking about. Desperate Farmer is the best common three drop in blue-black, I think, in general, ahead of Stitched Assistant. It just, like, lifelink is obviously great. We come back to this discussion literally every limited format where every card that gains life overperforms because no one ever properly adjusts for just internalizing. Oh, gaining life is just always great limited. And then Desperate Farmer is just really good to have around when you exploit anything, and then it becomes this like really good creature. Um, that's the 2-2 lifelink on the front that when another creature of yours dies, flips into a 4-3 lifelink. And then Gluttonous Guest is one of the winners of the um, most underplayed relative to how much it wins cards in blue-black, which isn't to say that it wins exceptionally often, just that it's played very little, and the defensive body with, you know, giving you a bit of blood and potential life gain for Courier Bat is, you know, an acceptable card to have. 
And then Diagraph Scavenger is just worth noting as this is a very good card just in general. It's in kind of the vampire spawn space where basically any black deck wants it. Blue-black, I think, uses it pretty well. It's not a part of the synergy stuff, so if you're really focusing on synergy stuff, it's, you know, you might prioritize other things over it. And then there's also an issue where you have an abundance of good four drafts. You have Diagraph, Scavenger, Cruel Witness, Bleed Dry as, like, absolute premium options. And then you also have, like, Repository Scab and Scattered Thoughts. And then... Further down from that, there's also Blood Crazed Socialite, which is a really strong card, but not really great in blue-black specifically. So you end up with this glut at four that leads to me sometimes needing to like deprioritize Diagraph Scavenger a little bit. But it's a really good card because blue-black is good at winning in the air, good at winning in long games, and Diagraph Scavenger is really good at blocking on the ground, buying you some time, making you not get killed. So... Just a, a good fit, even if it's an awkward spot on curve. I think the biggest problem with blue-black at common really is just that so many of its good cards cost three and four mana. I mentioned that Glottonous Guest was one of the most underplayed relative to how successful cards in blue-black. The other one is Grizzly Ritual, the six-mana removal spell. Again, not that that card is any is exceptional, but playable, and it's not played very much. So uh, don't feel bad if you end up in a spot where, like, oh, okay, I should, you know, I should play this. Like, it is it is a card that wins more than Scattered Thoughts, for example, which is the uh, four-minute instant. Look at four cards, draw two of them, mill two of them. Let's see, other stuff to touch on. Undying Malice and Alchemist Retrieval are both commons that have the perk of letting you re-trigger exploit stuff. And then they also just have like normal functionality outside of that. Both of them perform pretty well in blue-black. I think you should generally keep an eye out for them. And then another set of commons to talk about, counterspells. Syncopate and Siphon Essence at common, both, I I would say, overperform relative to what I would expect most people to anticipate i think they are the second and third best performing blue commons after lantern bearer i think that leads into a quick i think most people know this uh but worth acknowledging um just general statement about the format which is it's a bomb heavy format the games are very likely to be decided by rares and premium uncommons the gap in power level between the best commons and the average commons is not very big relative to the gap between any commons and the rares. I think a lot of people discuss that fact and formats uh, where this is true as an indictment to the format, and I don't necessarily see it that way. I think that there are some interesting things about this dynamic. I personally enjoy playing against busted rares because I feel really good when I beat them. And I also like that opening strong rares in draft gives you a direction and makes you draft a deck that you might otherwise not. And also, the early stats for this format are showing that this is the most balanced in terms of win rates for each color that we've seen in a long time. And I think that's because when games are determined by commons, the colors with the best commons just keep winning. 
Whereas when games are determined by rares, the color of a rare that someone happened to cast wins. And there are good rares in all the colors. And so the impact of rares helps to kind of obscure. Basically, it just like dwarfs the significance of any imbalance that exists in commons. And you might say, well, that doesn't change anything. Like it means that it's harder for us to know which color is better than another color, but there are still better colors and worse colors. But the reason that it matters is when you're playing a lot of drafts, especially on Arena, you don't play against the same decks over and over because people are going to be playing whatever colors of bombs they opened rather than just like, you know, drafting red-black treasure over and over or drafting blue-black zombies over and over. And so you just get more varied experience in terms of what you're playing against both in terms of just playing against more different color combinations and also having more games where the dynamic of the game is just different because it's warped by this one powerful card. You know, like Stensia Uprising, the Red Red 2 enchantment that makes a human every turn and threatens to do 7 damage is like, you know, a strong card, but not an unbeatable card. But it's a card that's going to have a warping impact on a game. You're going to have to play differently because your opponent has that card than you would if they had something else. And these powerful cards, for me, as someone who plays a lot and as someone who doesn't care very much about losing any game in particular, help to give me a more varied play experience, which I like. If you are someone who is prone to like tilting if you lose to a really powerful card, like there, there are certainly reasons to not to personally prefer uh formats that are more driven by commons but uh when i say that this is a you know rare driven or like prince format or whatever for me that's not an indictment of the format it's just acknowledging the matter the fact of the matter given that the fact of the matter is there are really strong rares that are going to determine a lot of games counterspells are a way to deal with them. Just as removal is better uh, in this format than it often is, counterspells are better in this format than it often is. So where, you know, in a lot of formats, I'll say, yeah, I just want like the good common creatures over the good common removal spells. You know, I don't really care if my deck has removal or not. Here, well, the good common creatures don't do anything. Like they're fine, but they lose to the good uncommon and rare creatures. So I'm not going to prioritize a good common creature because it's nothing special. Whatever it is, it's nothing special. There are just better creatures around. Whereas like bleed dry is completely effective and like, you know, works, it will do what I need as a removal spell and I'm not going to get as much removal as I want. So I'm going to take it, which, you know, is kind of like what I was saying about the uncommons driving both parts of the like exploit fodder package where, you know, I will prioritize like premium exploit and fodder creatures over common removal because the uncommons are so much better in that role than the common. It's, it's all about value over replacement and common creatures just don't offer good value over replacement in this format. Just full stop. So yeah, prioritize, prioritize hard removal, prioritize counter spells. And so that applies to, you know, syncopate, siphon essence and grizzly ritual in particular in blue black. I guess, you know, the the everything else I was saying about, you know, the creatures also just really applies here, right? Like, you know, I talked about how 
there's like the synergy stuff that you can look for. And it's good if you get a bunch of it, especially if it's powered at uncommon. And then there are some, you know, common creatures that are better than the other uh, common creatures, particularly like Desperate Farmer and Diagraph Scavenger. But there are so many uncommons that like are much better than those where the gap is just much bigger. Uh, the, the difference between a Desperate Farmer and like a Stitch Assistant or, you know, even a Gluttonous Guest isn't as big as the gap between a Desperate Farmer and the Scorpion or the Egg or something. And this is kind of true all the way down. Like preparing for this podcast, I made a skeleton of like what blue black looks like if you just take its 16 best performing commons. And then that left a list of all the other commons that aren't in that top 16. And I just noted them uh, in order based on their win rate. And I could go down pretty far on the commons that weren't in the top 16 and still have cards I'm perfectly happy to play, right? Like, so Scattered Thoughts, for example, is outside of, uh, is the, the top common that's outside of that deck. Gift of Fangs isn't in that deck. Persistent Specimen, Courier Bat, Blood Craze Socialite, all these cards that are reasonable, Mind Leech Ghoul, Dreadlight Monstrosity, Binding Geist, and Skywings, Skywarp Scab are both lower than everything else I've mentioned. And I, I've played a bunch of Binding Geists, and like I've played Skywarp Scab, and these these cards are like ten cards down the list of cards that you theoretically shouldn't even need to put in your deck. But the delta in quality between basically any two commons in this format, relative to the gap between you know commons and higher rarity cards, is just really really small, which can, from a certain frame of reference, make it seem like, okay, it just doesn't matter what I take. I should just like scan the pack for a bomb. If there isn't one, just take a random card of my color and it doesn't matter. But the other way of looking at it, which is more like how I look at it as someone who's, you know, obviously into really, you know, minor optimization is, you know, one of these choices is better than the other for where I am. And because all of the cards are comparably powerful in a vacuum, it's more likely that the correct choice is going to vary more depending on my exact needs and the exact context of the deck that I have. And so, again, this gets back to replayability. It's going to be more fun for me to keep drafting this format because it's not like, oh, I always take the A common over the B common over the C common, it's all the commons are about as good and I'm just looking for any little synergies I can find or any, you know, minor variations in what my curve is or like, do I need something to block flyers? Do I need something to end the game? Do I need something to like hold the ground early? Do I need like a removal spell for small creatures so that I don't get run over? And all those questions can really make me take like almost any common over almost any other common. And that's only true because the commons are all so comparable in power level. Yeah, that's all, you know, hopefully there's something useful in there or uh, you find my just kind of like, you know, theory level discussion of like what's going on in the construction of this format interesting. Let me see some other stuff I haven't covered. Uh, Blood Fountain is another card 
that uh, is pretty far down the list of cards that don't perform especially well, but I think is noteworthy in this deck. When you're exploiting, it's very easy to put cards in your graveyard, creature cards. And uh, so Blood Fountain is a very, it's, it's very easy to be able to count on Blood Fountain being able to put cards in your hand. The fact that you can count on Blood Fountain being able to put cards in your hand doesn't necessarily mean that you want to put it in your deck because it's still comparable to Scattered Thoughts, right? They're both use a card and four mana to put two cards that you've had some selection about into your hand. And this might be a format where spending four mana to put two cards in your hand is just not a great rate. If you have the kind of deck that's going to engineer games that can afford to do that because you're playing Desperate Farmers and Gluttonous Ghasts and Diagraph Scavengers that help the game go longer and you have removal spells to answer your opponent's bombs like Bleed Dry and uh, Grizzly Ritual. If you have some premium creatures that are going to die, then putting Blood Fountain in your deck so that you can threaten your opponent with them again might be a good choice for you. Uh, even though, again, Blood Fountain is something like the 24th best blue or black common or something. So I mentioned the top uncommons are like these premium removal spells and the exploit stuff. Another uncommon that I was happy to see performs quite well is Witness the Future, which is shuffle four cards in a graveyard into a library, look at four cards, put one in your hand, which is hypothetically just like from the text box, one of my favorite cards ever, because I just love doing that thing, just like looping my deck and casting my good cards over and over. And I was afraid that the format would be too aggressive for that, right? Like this is a format where like I know that Scattered Thoughts is pretty hard to use because it's pretty clunky. So I was surprised to see that in a pretty small sample size, Witness the Future has like a 58% win rate, which is, uh, you know, above most of the like non-bleed dry type commons in this color combination. That was encouraging in terms of telling me like, all right, you know, I'm allowed to do it. I, I have permission to try to draft the like blue-black Witness the Future control deck where I just, you know, have like card draw and removal and witness the future and try to kill my, kill my opponent's stuff forever. And I'm looking forward to doing that. Uh, I haven't done it because I thought that it was probably something I'd get punished for. So I'm looking forward to exploring that more. So that that's something that I can't, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. That's one of those things that it would be cool if I knew before recording this podcast, but I don't yet. So... I think if I were to keep going, I'd probably talk in circles. So instead of doing that, let's get some chat-directed babbling. So anything you feel like I haven't uh, answered or touched on or whatever yet, hit me up with uh, questions in chat, regardless of whether you've already said something about it or not. If I haven't addressed it, put it back in chat while I'm uh, letting people think about things they want to ask and type them up. I do want to thank my newest patron, Matthias or Matthias. Uh, probably Matthias. Thank you very much for your support. And anyone else who's interested in, you know, who appreciates my work or has learned from this podcast and is interested in, you know, giving back, supporting patreon.com slash drafting archetypes would be a great place to look, see if any of the benefits appeal to you. We offer things like access to all of my draft logs on 17 lands and uh, my notes 
for uh, each of these episodes. I do have notes for this episode. I did forget to post them uh, before recording this, but I will be posting them uh, after. So if you are listening to the podcast, as opposed to listening to this live, you can uh, look them up to follow along. Or well, I would hope you've already done that if that's something you like to do. And to anyone who's watching this live, there are some more details, you know, about the skeleton stuff that I mentioned that you can check out there later after I post this. Anyway, let's get to some questions. Since the format is so bomb heavy, how does splashing off-color bombs fit into blue-black? In my experience, splashing has not felt very easy to do in this format. I think green can do it pretty easily, and other decks, it's very hard. And I don't even necessarily think that it's a great idea to do it in green. Theoretically, like, blood helps, but in practice, I think it helps very little. I'm interested in the idea of a Grixis deck. I guess this is the thing I forgot to talk about. I'm interested in the idea of a Grixis exploit deck that uses Bloody Betrayal, but my my first draft ended up kind of like drifting into that space without properly preparing and had really bad mana. Um, I think if you're if you set out to do it, it might be reasonable, but for the most part, I, I found mana really tough in this format. It's not that it's low on number of cards that help you splash. The issue is that it has a bunch of three mana cards that let you splash, and you just can't put a bunch of three mana cards to help you splash in the same deck. You want, you know, like some jack-o'-lanterns and some whatever, you know, three mana fixing. But you, you want, you know, like a curve of anything that you're playing a lot of, and you can't have a curve of fixing. Uh, unless you're green, where you can at least have like mulch and the taxidermist. But if you're like blue black, you're like you know evolving wilds is great. Like if you have like evolving wilds and some scattered thoughts, and you're confident you're going to be able to play a long game. Maybe you make some blood. Maybe you have some really good bomb to splash. Sure, but for the most part, I am currently approaching this format, despite how important bombs and removal are, as a two color format. I want to be drafting in such a way that I can shift into a color to take advantage of like a really, really strong bomb that I see, but not in such a like greedy way that I just try to like play every color to play every bomb. I think the mana just works much better for two color decks and it's like better to, you know, potentially give up a bomb to have a consistent deck. Next up, you've said in the past that decks with strong bombs favor big games. Long games, really, I think. Um, some of the best improvement when drawn commons and uncommons, however, seem to be fairly aggressive, like Blood Tithe, Harvester, and Lantern Bearer. Is this uh, going to exert downward pressure on the win rate of bomb-centric decks? So the best way to beat a bomb is to win the game before your opponent draws or casts it. So if you don't have better bombs than your opponent, you'll be very well positioned if you can just kill them. So when you are looking at uncommons that win games, it makes sense that the uncommons that win games sometimes do it by killing your opponent. Blood, blood Tithe Harvester, the uh, red-black 3-2 that makes a blood and then can sacrifice to give something minus X, minus X, or X is twice the amount of blood you have, is the best uncommon right now by like 4%. And the reason is that it's both removal and good pressure and also value. And 
like this is a format that both wants you to answer bombs by killing your opponent and answer bombs by killing bombs and blood tithe harvester does both of those things like the fact that everyone should know your deck won't be able to hang in the late game unless you have bombs and you don't always have bombs therefore by default when you're drafting if you haven't seen a bomb you have to be aggressive yeah that's going to lead to a fast format and i think that's why i think that's a great like way to get me back into the previous statement about splashing um i think that the format the threat of people going over the top of you with these crazy bombs means that the people who don't have them have to try to kill you which means that you can't get super greedy with your fixing and you can't you know get super greedy with your card advantage and play scattered thoughts even though the fact that everyone wants to play all their removal means that the format should drift more toward attrition the this gets into the like <laughs> only so much removal exists and whether it's correct to take the removal first pick or whether it's correct to take the removal fifth pick doesn't change how much total removal there is very much it's a negligible negligible change there's just you know x good removal spells they're going to be in someone's deck you would like them to be in your deck but as far as how often you're playing against it that's just a function of how much of it is in the packs and maybe everyone would like to have two more removal spells than they do but because they don't have them the format doesn't actually end up being this like attrition grind fest now in sealed that can change in sealed you know people get to prioritize their removal relative to like their good threats differently depending on what's going on and so this sealed format might be particularly attrition based but draft is going to be about as much attrition as you know the amount of removal in the packs happens to allow that means yeah it, it means that yes i think that this is and will continue to be and likely only get more become more of an aggressive format next up touching on counter spells like siphon essence and syncopate how many would you run in draft deck uh, before not picking anymore when and how much to play counter spells and limited is always pretty like interesting and you know layered question i just seven out right before uh recording this podcast with a blue white deck that had a very low curve a lot of cheap uh flying creatures that i won by being very aggressive i did have two good rares they were they contributed but for the most part i was winning because i had a low curve of aggressive creatures that had evasion and I was supporting it with multiple counter spells so I could get under my opponent and then I could leave mana up to counter their things. And if you have a curve that lets you do that, that's kind of like the best spot for counter spells. Uh, it's analogous to if you've uh, followed standard over the past few years, like the mono blue deck that like Autumn Burchett won the Pro Tour with that uh, was, you know, like cheap flyers and counter spells. Uh, that's, like I, I guess you know broadly when the question is like how much should i play counter spells if you think about which constructed decks want counter spells structurally the same thing is true and limited so the decks that want counter spells are when you go way under your opponent you can afford to leave mana up uh because you're already ahead on board and so if you trade mana with them when they try to play their spell you keep your advantage whereas if you fall behind, your opponent has some creatures, your counter spells don't catch you up. And so while you can trade to stop them from pulling further ahead, you're still just sitting there getting beat up, which 
isn't going to work unless you can afford to get beat up because you have some kind of strong catch-up mechanic in your deck that's going to cost more mana, but it's going to like get you back where you need to be, which could be just, you know, like essence or scattered thoughts and removal spells. So you could have, you know, just like a draft deck that has like a bunch of abrades and scattered thoughts and counter spells and doesn't have early pressure, but has cheap removal and card advantage. And that's a way to play a lot of removal or a lot of counter spells. And then there's the low curve way to play a lot of counter spells. If you are playing like blue green, just like a bunch of fatties that cost three, four, and five mana, that deck can't afford to play very many counter spells because it's going to be really hard for you to leave up mana for them. You, it might be okay to have like one of them. And then when you're done casting your stuff, maybe you hold up a counter spell when you're like getting in combat or something, but you don't want a lot of that. And so the answer <laughs> to how many am I supposed to play is, well, it depends on how good they are in your deck. So I don't have a number for you. Uh, so that was a, a lot of words to not answer your question, but also I hope it answered a question that um, might, might have been more useful. Next up, how cute is Ghost Kitty? Very. <laughs> Next up, uh, how many specimens is too many? I had a good blue-black deck with nine exploit, three specimens, two dissenter as the main fodder. I guess I can imagine three being right in that spot. Nine is a ton of exploit. You do really want to have one in general. I think I would prefer to try to stick to two. Like, I would much rather have three to center, two specimen, than three specimen, two to center. But, um, you know, if you're just like, hey, was I stupid for playing the third specimen here? Uh, I could believe that the third specimen was right in that particular deck, but it sounds pretty exceptional. Should exploit blue-black have a high or low curve? How many creatures should usually be in blue-black exploit? Really depends on what exploit stuff you're seeing. The blue-black exploit deck that I had that I thought was best was like low curve, very aggressive with multiple um, skull scabs and really cheap fodder. And I, you know, made like 10 zombies on turn three or something. It, it was completely absurd. I guess I mean turn four, probably. You know, you can also play... Uh, I, I played against a really cool exploit deck that was using repository scab with like alchemist retrieval and the rare three three flying counter exploit thing, and it had witnessed the future, and it just like got into these like crazy loops of like getting back counter spells and uh, using um, blood fountain to get back its exploit stuff and took a game that I thought I was really far ahead and just like crawled its way back through generating all this like value over a really long game. And that deck has a really, really different curve than the like aggro exploit deck that I had. So not all exploit decks are created equally and it's really just going to depend on the exact details of your deck. What are my opinions on the data shown so far? For example, it rates Witness the Future very low, but mentioned seeing it perform well. Actually, what I mentioned was seeing that its win rate is good in blue-black specifically. It uh, had a 58% win rate in blue-black. I didn't look at its win rate overall. I just saw that it, in a pretty small sample size, had um, success there, which makes me think that maybe I should try it out. Um, my personal experience with Witness has been low because I've been too skeptical to try it, and 
It was precisely the data that has me interested in giving it a chance. Next up, is it worth heavily investing slash focusing on trying to get the third or the three card infinite zombie combo? Wow, there's an infinite zombie combo. That's pretty cool. I wonder if it uses a rare. I haven't read all of those. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I guess it depends on how good these three cards are. Uh, th this is news to me, so I guess I can't answer the question. Next up, is it worth it to splash a good card when you're solid on blue-black? I think I already touched on this. I will generally be trying to avoid splashing. And then this is another question that was probably asked before I went deeply into it. Is splashing with blood, is splashing easier with blood? Not as much easier as you would hope. Blood is nowhere near as good as splashing as treasures, for example. Am I correct in assuming that most or all of your blue-black decks have been playing small games? Um, is there a danger in playing a small game that might be longer if you don't have any bombs? I would say that uh, the exploit stuff isn't actually always playing small games, and neither is the flying stuff. Uh, so playing a small game with the blue-black would imply, like, heavily prioritizing removal and kind of playing more of the value game, which is what I see as possible with the like control approach. But I would say that actually my blue-black, my experience personally with blue-black has been appreciably more tempo-oriented, where I'm, you know, like playing Cruel Witness and chumping with Doom Dissenter and, you know, playing like Diagraph Scavenger to drain my opponent and hold the fort while I attack with, like, flyers, and I've been, like, going wide with zombies due to just, like, really going off with Skull Skip. Oh! Random note that I... Uh, this is, Sorry, this is totally off topic from this question. But um, a mistake that I made, and then I saw an opponent make the same mistake, so I want to talk about Skull Skip, the blue-black uncommon 2-2 exploit uh, when you exploit a non-token creature, make a 2-2 zombie. That card, like that, when you sacrifice that, uh, you get a 2 2 zombie. So it's basically the same thing as Doom to Center, but like with a better front side. And so I had a game where I played that and then played Stitch Assistant and sacrificed uh, my 2 2 because it's like, oh, well, this is basically a Doom to Center. So I'll sacrifice it to my assistant and I'll get a zombie and I'll get my like op from my Stitch Assistant. What I should have done is I should have exploited the, I should have sacrificed the stitched assistant to itself. I still get the 2-2, two -two, but I get to keep my 2-2 two -two that makes 2-2s two when I sack things rather than keeping my 3-2 that doesn't make 2-2s two when I sack things because I had other exploit cards in my deck. And so it's worth giving up one power right now for another zombie the next time I do this. And then I, I played against another blue-black deck that did the same thing. Uh, sacrificed their 2-2 two -two to their 3-2 instead of sacking the 3-2 two -two to itself. But just wanted to, you know, a note on playing this deck, which I usually don't get into, is if you have that Skull Scab as a thing that pays you for exploiting a bunch and you have other exploit stuff, don't throw away your Skull Scab. You can just sack creatures to themselves. And then you can, you know, like, do stuff like get those creatures back uh, with, like, the bat or the fountain and then do it again. Um, that's that's good. Anyway, as far as big games versus small games, uh, so that guy who's making zombies when I sack stuff, that leads to big games. So it's, you know, it's cool if you have removal, but I guess often instead of having, you know, a bunch of bleed dries, 
I end up with like Chill the Graves and uh, the Uncommon Bounce Spell that draws a card and play, you know, those those lead to longer games and bigger games because they, uh, you know, give me more cards and don't get rid of a thing. And just like that thing is not currently trading with anything because it's locked up. It's just leading to a bigger game. So, no, uh, I guess I would say you're not correct in assuming that I've been doing small games with this deck specifically, or this archetype. Next up is an interesting question that I don't have a great answer to. Is there a specific color pie, I assume color pair, counters the blue-black exploit strategy? This is like a pretty interesting question for me about limited in general. Like, oh, which pair, like what archetype is good against what other archetype? And it's not, like, it's a really useful question to think about in Sealed, where you might have a lot of different ways that you can build your deck and different archetypes you can play, and you play against someone and you discover which archetype they are. And um, if you know which archetype is good against them, you can become that archetype to beat them. Whereas, most of the time in draft, if you know which archetype is good against another archetype, that doesn't do anything for you because by the time you're actually playing against someone, you can't change what archetype you are. And because I almost exclusively play draft rather than sealed, it's not something that I've had an incentive to like really study or learn about. But then every time, you know, whenever I do play a lot of sealed, I'm like, oh, wow, it would be cool to know this. Um, so the answer is, if you're a sealed player, I think it's a really interesting question, but unfortunately not one I have an answer to. Uh, you mentioned exploit is not so heavy, so worth even going with the archetype. My experience has been that I have been able to get decks that have like deep exploit synergies, and they, it, that has played well. So I guess, yes, I do think there's enough of it. I was just saying that if you're fighting with someone else, you are likely going to struggle. But you, you know, that that's just a matter of, you know, being prepared to navigate the draft and figuring out what you can and can't do in a particular draft. And so that's similar to like when I was, for those who um, listened and remember, uh, when I talked about green, white, and midnight hunt, I mentioned that that was like a very uncommon based archetype and that it would struggle if someone else at the table is looking for the same uncommons. Similar situation here. The exploit decks, the uncommons for the exploit deck are so much better than the commons that it's an uncommon-based space to go in, which means that it's going to struggle if you're fighting with someone. But those uncommons are so good that you'll be heavily rewarded if you can take advantage of them. And because they do require this specific setup to take advantage of, if it, that lane is open, you'll be rewarded for being able to utilize it. So that means that, yes, sometimes when you see those cards, it's going to be worth doing because the payoff is high. It's often said that counterspells pair well with instants and creatures with flash. What other types of cards pair well with counterspells? Uh, cheap creatures. Instants, creatures with flash, and cheap creatures. Also, just cheap cards. Cheap removal, cheap creatures, instants. That's the list. I guess also bombs that catch you up for not having done anything while you were holding up sweepers or holding up mana, which is to say sweepers. So cheap creatures and sweepers, though ideally not together. 
are the other things that pair well with counterspells. How hard can you lean in the control direction? Is it worth trying to lean as hard as you can, given how important dealing with bombs is? So, problem with leaning super hard into the control direction where you're like, oh, I need to deal with bombs, so I'm going to prioritize removal, and then I'll be able to deal with bombs. Well, two issues. One, everyone else also wants those removal spells, so you might just not see enough. And if you have drafted a slow deck that doesn't have as much removal as you were hoping for, you will give your opponent time to cast a bomb that you can't deal with, and you will lose. Also, other people who did not get as much removal as they wanted and didn't get bombs will be incentivized to go as fast as possible. And if you filled your deck with four and six mana removal spells, you will lose the players who fill their deck with two and three mana creatures. So it's not that easy. Curve is also a good question. I've been going lower and lower and limited over the past two, the last two years. Is it get on board fast, but still be grindy? Yes. I, if I understand your question correctly, Yes, I think that this is still a format that wants a low curve. I think that we see that very, very clearly with things like Lantern Bearer having the best win rate among blue commons and Traveling Minstrel or whatever, Minister? Traveling Minister, not Minstrel Minister. Traveling Minister having uh, one of the highest win rates among white commons. This is another format where one mana creatures matter a lot and formats that start on one are just kind of categorically faster than formats that start on two. And yeah, so you're going to you're gonna want a low curve still. Even if you have bombs, a lo low curve is going to help you not fall too far behind and have time to cast them. For the blue-black flyers lane, which categories of cards go up in priority? For example, high toughness black creatures, counter spells. High toughness black creatures go up more than counter spells because... Like Cruel Witness becomes a pretty important part of your strategy and is a sorcery speed four mana card. Still fine to have some counter spells, but any of the flying stuff, any of the good blocking stuff, removal, any of the just like raw power non synergy stuff like Diagraph Scavenger. Like you, basically, because you're less synergistic, you're just, it's a good spot to just put any generically strong cards. Um, which means as far as like what goes up in priority, up relative to what, you know, like for the most part, it's just, well, you can draft things based on kind of their like natural prioritization or whatever. Would you splash Edgar in a dedicated blue-black deck with no other vampires and only one Evolving Wild as fixing? I mostly remember what that card does and... It depends on how aggressive my deck is, but I would certainly consider it. Next question, what will change in double feature? I have no ability to answer that question because double feature is a product that will include selected cards from uh, Midnight Hunt and Crimson Vow, and I don't know which cards they will select. Next question, there are so many big toughness creatures, you mentioned Guest, uh, that also kind of cap aggression too, though. I guess that's not really a question. Um, uh, yes, that it is true that there are ways to defend against aggressive decks. The aggressive decks are aware that those things exist and can play tricks and removal spells to and ev evasive creatures to get through those. Ah, Repository Scab plus Undying Malice plus Skull Scab or Headless Rider is a loop that nets you a zombie for every black mana you have. Yes, that's true. That is not infinite zombies, but it is 
a source of some amount of zombie generation. All of those cards are fine to put in a deck. Next question. How many bombs make you a bomb-based deck that should no longer be leaning aggro? Just one, two, of course, this also ties into what counts as a bomb, which is also something I'm interested in where you draw the line on. Yeah, you are correct that this is uh, a murky subject. If you have, uh, you know, like one of the top bombs, like Toxrill or whatever that slug guy is named, and um or like the whole breacher guy or whatever and you have like a lot of card draw and removal and maybe witness the future or some other way to get it back you can you know build your whole deck around just the one but if you're like you have less card selection and you're more mid-range uh you might need multiples in case because you're like less likely to draw a certain one as far as like the experience while you're drafting and trying to figure it out how much you are trying to like stay alive to find your bombs versus just like being a normal or perhaps aggressive deck that includes a bomb uh just shifts as appropriate or as needed but as a function of like how many you have but also just kind of like trying to draft the best deck you can in a way that's very hard to spell out next up how does gutter skulker compare to cruel witness gutter, gutter skulker is the 3-3 three, three, uh that can can't be blocked if it's attacking alone so it's worse on defense than cruel witness because it's not giving you any static ability and it's not blocking flyers and it's worse when paired with other flying creatures on offense because it's only unblockable when it's attacking alone but it is a more inevitable threat by itself so it's less good if you are like a tempo type deck and more good if you are a deck that's prone to a board stall and looking for a way to reliably kill your opponent so they're doing slightly different things and i think that's my answer to how i would compare them so i am caught up currently on questions from chat i will give a moment here for follow-up questions and then wrap this up i will be getting back to my regular schedule of recording on wednesdays uh, this episode was recorded recorded on Sunday. This is a late episode for last week because I wanted to wait until I had some experience to speak from. So in just a few days, we will be doing this again. I am for right now probably not going to be putting up a poll for the next one and just choosing the archetype that I feel most comfortable talking about again for Sunday or for uh, for Wednesday. Yeah, that's going to do it. Uh, thanks everyone for tuning in wherever however you tuned in and i will be back as i said in a few days prepare for light speed. Bye.